What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. I know your time is valuable, and I do appreciate it. Um, I have to apologize. Uh, I know the content has been a little less frequent. I was away over the weekend and, and towards the end of the week, so I didn't really get a chance. It's, it's the same old story, right? Didn't really get a chance to record in my studio. Um, but I actually did it. I, I was just, uh, you know, with, with friends and family at the beach and stuff like that. So uh, we're getting back on schedule, or at least that's the plan. Um, just to give you a quick update, there's a couple of podcasts that I'm working on simultaneously. So they've been, um, I don't know why I chose to do them all at the same time, or at least the research at all at the same time. Um, however, that's just the way I work. I can't, I have too, my ADD is way too strong just to focus on one thing at a time. So I got to focus on like five different things. I'm, I'm a James Woods and family guy. Ooh, a candy. Ooh, a candy. Ooh, a candy. But, uh, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Um, I felt I had to get an episode out just because it's been a while. And also, um, you know, since I know a lot of you guys listen to this show for information about Syria. And um, there has been a lot of weird and strange updates. It's in the news again. And um, just to give you kind of, a, if you're, if you're uh, listening for the first time, and um, I think that the title of this podcast is most likely going to be a bit provocative, so I bet we'll get some first-time listeners on this thing. Um, the reason why I talk about Syria a lot is because... The Syrian war has probably been the largest war since, in the 21st century, definitely. But I think you can even argue it's been the largest war since the Vietnam War, or at least Desert Storm. And um, especially in terms of just casualty numbers. So I think it's really important that we, we cover this because, you know, we don't want this to go into the, you know, the... The, the back pages of history, like the Iranian-Iraq war. Um, the Iranian-Iraq war is probably bigger than this, but we got to get a total number of casualties. But just to give you kind of a, a, a rundown or just kind of like a, a, a scale of the war, I mean, the war has been eight years long at this point. There have been 250,000 killed insurgents. That's just insurgents alone. So I'm not talking about the civilian toll, which is... Um, over half a million at this point. Um, people think this was kind of like an insurgency, but it wasn't at all. It was. It was. Uh, there were rolling battles. It was third generation warfare. It was. It was classic armor and mechanized infantry battles, and uh, the scale of the battles were were the biggest since Desert Storm. So right now, the Syrian civil war is the biggest war in the 21st century. Maybe you can include some battles in Iraq, like the Battle of Mosul, but that technically, I guess you could say, is part of the Syrian war. At least it was the same type of theater, same type of belligerence. But um, that's why I talk about the Syrian war so much, just because of it's so big, and it's definitely going to be tomorrow's history. So um, need I feel obliged to inform you guys about what's going on to the best of my ability, especially since... The majority of the media coverage of the Syrian war has been absolutely terrible. Like it's been very, very bad. Um, it's borderline, or you can you can even say it's journalistic malpractice in a lot of cases. Um, it's terrible. And um, I actually want to lead this podcast off with a very interesting segment I saw from Sky News. 
And just to give you some background, so um, right now we're, we're pretty much at the end of the war. Um, the Syrian government has won, and they have cornered pretty much all the jihadist rebels into a province called Idlib in Hama. And um, right now Syria is in the process of, of uh, retaking those cities or liberating these, uh, these population centers. And the reporting from Sky News has been very, was, was, was very strange. And I'm going to play the clip. And I'm going to try to explain what's happening verbally as I play the sound clip. But um, I, I'll leave the YouTube uh, video in the link to the description so you can actually look at it afterwards. But it's really, really interesting. And I'll tell you why after I play it. The signs of battle are all around. And this in the middle of a residential area, which both sides agreed they'd stay out of. It was meant to be a buffer zone, keeping the rebels and the Syrian regime apart and protecting the civilians. It very definitely isn't that. The rebels have made a string of territorial gains and the regime forces are lashing back. So Alex Crawford, that's the, the journalist that you're hearing right now and her Sky News team, they're in an active combat zone right now. It's not a fourth generation combat zone, which would be more of like an insurgency setting. It's a third generation combat zone where they're actively fighting. Um, there is absolutely no evidence. There's no visual evidence that there's any civilians present right here. So I just want to make that note immediately. There's a lot of action going on. A lot of heat going in still and a tank on fire. So the rebels and uh, the regime and helped by the Russians and the Iranians are really battling over territory for this final rebel stronghold. And the rebels aren't giving up without a huge fight. So this is important. They are with Alex Crawford and her Sky News team. They're currently with, they're reporting with Hayat Terrell Sham. Haya Terella Sham is a U.S. De designated Al Qaeda affiliate, so she's with terrorists right now. And I'll just read from a BBC article, which BBC has been very hawkish on Syria, and they've just been just as complicit as the American media when it comes to putting out a lot of false narratives when it comes to the Syrian war. So I'll just read from this this quick this quick article. Um, the ongoing government offensive against the last rebel-held areas in northern Syria has once again put the spotlight on the jihadist group Hayat Terrell al-Sham, HTS, the dominant faction in Idlib province. Although HTS, formerly known as Nusra Front, continues to pursue a jihadist agenda, it formally split from al-Qaeda in 2016, prompting harsh criticism from al-Qaeda leadership and defections by al-Qaeda loyalists. Al-Qaeda appears to have given up on HTS returning to the fold. A new group called Haras al-Din, which emerged last year, is widely to believed to be al-Qaeda's new branch in Syria. Despite this, the UN and a number of countries continue to consider HCS as an al-Qaeda affiliate and to frequently use its former name, Nusra Front. The group itself appears to be trying to strike a balance between maintain, maintaining its jihadist credentials and dis distancing itself from global jihadist groups for the sake of survival. HCS today is one of the strongest militant factions in northern Syria, having consolidated its power in the region through seizing territory from rival rebel groups in the past two years. The fact that the UN designates them as al-Qaeda linked, I don't know. I'm from New York. I remember when I was in seventh grade, two planes going into the Twin Towers, where I'm from, and killing 3,000 people. 
So it's really, really difficult for me to have any sympathy whatsoever to any type of Al-Qaeda group. But, I don't know. Sky News does. It's like dances with wolves for them. She's Kevin Costner. But we've been spotted by the regime. Now we are the target. They're aiming for the tank. We're clearly marked as media, and I'm wearing a Muslim dress. Run! The fact that she is wearing a Muslim dress shows the intolerance of the group that she's with. She is being, um, she has to abide by Sharia law. So she's with, a, she's clearly with a jihadist linked group. With us are two civilian activists and with a military drone overhead, we realize we're being tracked. This is what has driven tens of thousands of civilians to flee their homes. Staying stationary isn't helping. There's no doubt that the, you know, the bombing raids and the, sh and the airstrikes from Assad and Russia are forcing uh, civilians to evacuate and leave. And I do think Assad does deserve a lot of criticism for some of his mentality. Like, I, he is fighting the war in a very brutal capacity. I don't want to sit here as an Assad apologist. I'm trying to make the point that the media unfairly uh, covers the war as well as aligns himself with very nefarious actors. Um, However, a big part of the evacuation and why civilians leave is because they don't want to be guided under Sharia law. And I think in some mess, and this is not a good thing for, coming from Assad, I think Assad feels that if rebels or Earth, the civilian population is not rebelling against the insurgencies that overtake their population centers, then they're part of the problem. I don't think that is fair. I think that is his mentality, though. But let's keep on going. The Blitz appears designed to do just that, push people out, and they're now cornered in Idlib province with nowhere else to go. Come through this way. There's somebody shooting at that vehicle on the road. They've got a line of sight. And I'm just going to add a tad of context for people who are listening for the first time. So Idlib province, the reason why the war is pretty much ending there is because when Assad started winning the war, when Russia entered and they started freeing up their forces, they pushed all the insurgent factions, all the different rebel factions into Idlib, into a retreat zone. And what ended up happening is that they ended up fighting each other. So you saw these different groups, these different militant groups, some of them moderate, some of them, I mean, moderate, whatever. Um, some of them jihadist militants, some of them just straight up terrorists. They all started fighting each other. And al-Nusra, um, HTS now, what they call themselves, is they emerged as the, uh, as the, uh, the big fish over there. But let's keep on going. Come this way. Those are 23s. I know. The military aircraft is still above us. One of the activists has been injured. I'm hit. As we scramble for cover, the regime isn't giving up. They're firing at us as we're trying to leave. Come on, man, put it on the floor. Let's go. Idlib civilians are enduring this every day in this latest assault. Are you all right, Bilal? Where are you hit? Bilal, oh, shit. he is hit. He's been hit by shrapnel. Sky producer Martin Vowles bandages his wound. It doesn't appear too serious. This relentless shelling and the airstrikes are endangering millions of people now trapped in Idlib. 
But civilians are very much in the firing line right now, aren't they? Uh, well, when you drop barrel bombs in the middle of a city, um, it, it, we don't get the impression that they're concerned about uh, civilians because there's no backlash. And as long as there's no backlash, it's, it's okay. Who is this Bilal Abdul Karim that Sky News has aligned themselves with? Sounds mysterious, right? Well, if you heard his voice, you could probably tell that he's American. And he's a New Yorker. He's a New Yorker who moved to Syria to cover the war. And this is a guy who has worked with a number of different media outlets, including CNN. And he, his, I'll say allegedly, this is, comes from his critics, he has alleged to be in alignment with jihadi fighters in Syria. Um, he has been called a jihadist propagandist who delivers an open platform. He has a YouTube channel uh, to extremists who call for jihad and violence. Now, I said allegedly. Now, um, Max Bloomingfall, I found an interview uh, on RTTV. RTTV, that's Russian propaganda. Well, Max Blumenthal, I think, in, in my opinion, is one of the best journalists in the entire world, and I, and I really do take pretty much most of what he says as as as, uh, as credible. So I'm going to play an interview from Max Blumenthal on RTTV explaining who this guy is. And take in mind, this is uh, from July 2017. CNN is being linked to the al-Qaeda faction al-Nusra Front in Syria. Okay, I know that sounds very, very extreme, and that's an extreme indictment to lead off on. And take in mind, I don't take everything RTT, RTTV says as complete truth. I, I take them just as other media outlets. Everything they say I take with a grain of salt, just like MSNBC, CNN, uh, BBC, Sky News. Um, but this was very interesting. So just listen and make your mind up for yourself. This is the subject that was explored by my next guest, author and senior editor, Alternet's Gray Zone Project, Max Blumenthal. Max, good to see you. First, can you tell us uh, who Bilal uh, Abdul Karim is, was, and, and why CNN's link to him isn't, isn't boding very well? Well, I don't know if it's boding well or not. CNN intends to completely overlook this story, and it kind of sounds like a wild-eyed conspiracy. CNN linked to al-Qaeda. But the fact is that CNN, for its undercover in Syria special, hired, contracted the services of Bilal Abdul Karim, who is the only American living in al-Qaeda-controlled territory uh, that I know of. He is someone who's been referred to by top al-Qaeda clerics like Abdullah Mohaysani as our media man. Al-Arabiya, the st Saudi state media organ, referred to Abdul Karim as a member of Jabhat al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Syria. I don't know if that's true. I just want to point out those are absolutely extreme allegations. And Max Blumenthal doesn't like sensationalize this. He tells the truth. But that is an extreme allegation that he is a member of al-Nusra. Ab Abdul Karim has denied it. Abdul Karim's co close colleague for his online organization on the ground news, um, Akif Razak, who is a British citizen who entered Syria into al-Qaeda territory, has just had his citizenship stripped. Uh, the British government has accused him of membership. So this guy's partner is not allowed back into the UK because he is aligned with an al-Qaeda aligned group. And the British think the return to the country would present a risk to the national security of the UK. So this guy seems to be a bad actor.
if he's not allowed back in the UK. Jesus. I was under the impression that the UK was more tolerant on this stuff, but maybe I'm wrong. Or maybe he's that bad. In Al-Qaeda, and it's very clear that Abdul Karim is close to Al-Qaeda because if you watch any of his videos and his interviews or the interviews he grants Al-Qaeda's own media affiliates, he is extremely sympathetic to its clerics, to its ideology, and he echoes its um, sectarianism. So this was well known when CNN's Clarissa Ward entered East Aleppo and Idlib, Al-Qaeda-controlled territory, in 2016, when she contracted him. Why she contracted him, well, that's for her to explain. It's because it's a romantic story. A native New Yorker befriends a exiled British citizen and starts covering the truth about the Syrian war and the brutality of Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime and aligns himself with the global jihad. It's a very, very romantic story, and they should be making... They should make a script about this. I see it as more of a show. Hey, HBO is looking up for looking for their next big hit after HBO uh, after Game of Thrones ended. Oh wait, they filmed it in Northern Ireland, so you uh, won't be allowed in the country. All right. <laughs> no, the Syrian government though and Russia, they both say that Abdul Karim cavorts with terrorists. American terrorism analysts criticize him for providing an, an uncritical English language platform for the jihadists. This guy denies his affiliation, but there's all this cloud of suspicion around him. Yet CNN still went ahead and employed him for this documentary. Shouldn't they have been aware of the drama surrounding this man? It's, it's almost as if they didn't care and they were seeking access to further the regime change editorial line that dominates all CNN coverage. I mean, if you tune in to Jake Tapper's The Lead, every day he's promoting regime change against Venezuela, North Korea, Syria, and um, any other country he can think of that isn't in line with the U.S. So what um, Clarissa Ward has consistently done since she's been um, working for CNN is infiltrate Syria, get into rebel-held territory, and produce these commercials for the rebels started in 2011, but now the rebels are dominated by these Salafi jihadi factions. And Abdul Karim is really one of the only American-speaking, uh, sorry, English-speaking videographers who's welcome in these territories. He's welcome there because he has a great relationship with al-Qaeda. There's just no disputing what, that he has a very good relationship. What do you them. think this says about the network itself, then? Yeah, it says that the network has absolutely no principles, it's completely shameless, and it hasn't been telling the American public the truth about who the rebels are and what would come into place if CNN and the State Department and intelligence service uh, figures who it consistently acts as a stenographer, stenographer for achieved their goal. Uh, they would be people very much in line with Bilal Abdul Karim, and it's an absolute scandal that CNN has paid money into al-Qaeda's media apparatus. This is an absolute scandal. Now imagine how uh, liberal opponents of Trump would howl if CNN paid money to a neo-Nazi propagandist from who supported David Duke. It would be over for whatever correspondent contracted that neo-Nazi, but in this case, they're totally silent, and I have to ask why. Well, it's very... It's very obvious. It's because the mainstream media is a, the corporate media is a 
media outlet for the state and the state wants regime change in Syria. I mean, it's pretty simple. So they're willing to align themselves with anyone, anyone, including people who have alleged ties, always use the word alleged, alleged ties to al-Qaeda, the people who blew up the Twin Towers. And, and obviously, Abdul Karim keeps insisting that he's an independent journalist. Um, can you first point out what his background was when, I mean, he's a, he's a kid from, from New York, number one, and a former comedian, apparently. Um, so how does he go from that to this so-called independent journalist that's apparently the only American in, in the Idlib area? Well, I, I wouldn't describe Abdul Karim as a, a kid. He's a very savvy um, media professional. Um, who has managed to insinuate himself not only into Syria, but was active in Libya promoting the NATO and Qatar-backed rebels there before he somehow just mysteriously wound up in rebel-controlled territory in Syria. At Alternet, we've previously exposed Abdul Karim uh, for um, publishing articles supportive of Anwar al-Awlaki, the al-Qaeda-affiliated cleric. Stop it. I just want to prov- uh, provide some context into who uh, Alaki was. He was that uh, guy in Yemen who was put on the Obama kill list, who was killed in a drone strike without due process. Um, I don't agree with killing someone without due process. However, he was in Al-Qaeda videos, and he was calling for violence against U.S. civilians and U.S. troops. So this was a very bad guy, even though I don't agree with killing someone, an American citizen without due process. He was a bad guy. Uh, we have pub- we have exposed his relationship with clerics um, and his propagation of their sectarian narrative. Clerics who, like Al Mahdi, who have called for the genocide of Shia inside Syria. He just recently appeared on the Ramadan special of Abdullah Mohaseni, probably the most influential cleric in Al Qaeda-controlled territory. And it was there that Mohaseni introduced Abdul Karim as our media man and praised him. So this is this is just well known, and anyone who covers Syria or follows Syria should have known this. Clarissa Ward went in to do her regime change public relations special, knowing this was who Bilal Abdul Karim was, and she contracted him anyway. And she needs to offer a public explanation of why this is permissible. Not only that, her bodyguard, someone named Abu Yusuf, appears to have been one of the rebels as well, which raises questions. Did CNN also pay actual armed rebels? And I'll just add one more thing. So this interview was in 2017. In 2018, um, Kareem, he actually sued the U.S. government claiming that he was on a kill list. Uh, This guy apparently survived five different drone strikes. Uh, I mean, who knows what's the validity of that? But he says that he survived five different drone strikes and that he is on the kill list and he, uh, he sued the U.S. government because of it. Do I think that he should be put on a kill list? No, I think that American citizens should be brought back to the country and they should be tried and be given due processes. They shouldn't just be murdered, but I, it just kind of illustrates the severity of the people that who he hangs around with. You are who you hang out with. You know, If you hang out with a bunch of bad guys, then you're going to be associated with them. And if this guy is actually... Al-Qaeda, like if he's official Al-Qaeda, then Sky News, at the end of that report, they were actually giving him medical assistance. So that leads me to believe that Sky News was aiding and abetting a known terrorist, which is bad people. All right. So with the war winding down, um, well, it's not winding down right now. The last assault is taking place in Idlib. 
Um, but now that the Rebels are, are really in a corner right now, um, I mean, they're going to be getting desperate. And I think the best way for them to gain Western sympathy is to start claiming chemical weapons attacks. I mean, that would be the natural thing to do is try to claim a chemical weapons attack and try to provoke a Western response. Um, that being said, any claim that the Syrian government right now is using chemical weapons in Idlib should be taken with a vast amount or a high degree of skepticism. And the reason why you have to be skeptic is you have to realize that the Syrian government has nothing to gain by launching a chemical attack. That would be really stupid. Why would they provoke provoke a Western response when they're about to win the war? And that's been true for a while now. Assad has been winning the war for a long time. This isn't 2013 anymore when, you know, the future of Syria was very hazy. Um, last year in April in 2018, there was an alleged chemical weapons attack, or there was a chemical attack, um, and the Western media, they quickly blamed Bashar al-Assad. Well, now it's coming out that it was very possibly staged. It was a false flag operation by al-Qaeda groups that were claiming that they attacked them. Surprise, surprise. I think I've said that over and over again. So the last uh, chemical attack that provoked a Western response was the one that took place last year in April, around the same time as now. It always seems to be spring. Spring or summer is when these, these, uh, these attacks happen. And in response, the U.S. fired a bunch of cruise missiles at Syrian army and government positions. And they did this without any investigation into who was actually responsible for this. So earlier this week, a um, OPCW report was leaked. Uh, That's the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. And uh, they had previously came to the conclusion that the gas attacks, the, the, the chemical weapons were fired through a mortar through a roof. And there was leaked documents from the OPCW saying that that they think that it could have been that someone actually placed the weapons there instead of it being fired uh, via mortar shot. So a, a lot of skepticism is now arising, and most media outlets aren't touching this. And I'm actually going to be doing, I'm actually working on an episode to go over the entire timeline of chemical weapons attacks and i'm actually going to be very objective i want to try to get danny abdeljabar on as well so he so he can push back on some of my findings so i'm not just speaking to an echo chamber on this one but um i'm do, i am working on that and so i'm gonna have a full breakdown i may even try to get some experts on as well to, to go through it because by, i am by no means a scientist you know what i mean um however you know i always have my doubts and my doubts are always based on the political situation um, in, in reality, I always look at the motives and why would he do that? Why would Bashar al-Assad gas his own people when all it's going to do is just, um, really hurt his case for, for, uh, for, for, uh, maintaining his government. However, there are some good people in the media and I want to highlight this. So the only person who speaks out against this, and I, and I always question why and how this guy gets away with saying this type of stuff on air. And that guy is Tucker Carlson with the combination of Tulsi Gabbard, two people who I like. And I don't know why they let Tucker Carlson go on air and uh, just be unapologetic and blunt about different things. And 
um, have a nuanced narrative on different issues. I don't know why they let him do that, but for some reason he's able to do it. Uh, it may be because he has the highest ratings on cable TV on cable news right now. Um, sometimes I think he probably has like pictures of of somebody high up, um, like in an affair or something, or like with a prostitute. And like if anything ever happened to him, those photos would be released. Um, whatever it is, he does a good job. Um, love him or hate him, I know some of you guys are are liberals and you probably don't like him, but he does speak the truth about a lot of things that are surprising that other mainstream media outlets will never ever ever touch like msnbc cnn uh will never touch some of the things that he says and it's really surprising going back because i was talking about sky news uh sky news and and fox news they're both owned by rupert murdoch so it's like it's kind of weird and i'm trying to put my head around that weird combination um you know, one one seems to be a propaganda outlet. I mean, Fox News is not perfect at all, but Tucker Carlson seems to be able to to, to do what he wants on air. So I'm going to play this, and uh, he just does a great job breaking this down, and then we'll wrap this episode up because I got some uh, other podcasts I got to work on. In April of last year, the United States launched a wave of missile strikes against Bashar Assad's government in Syria was the second time in two years. The justification for both attacks was an alleged aerial chemical weapons attack on anti-Assad rebels in Douma, Syria. At the time that happened, this program was pretty much the only show on mainstream television to show any skepticism about the official narrative of the attack. And this is uh, Tucker Carlson in 2018 questioning the official narrative. Again, I think he has photos of somebody with a hooker. Oh, yeah, and the sirens you're about to hear in the background of Tucker, those aren't my sirens for once. They're his sirens. They're just playing the clip of, uh, of the gas attack with, like, the ambulance in the background. So not my sirens. Before we go to war, are we sure all of this is real? Do we really know that Assad was behind the gas attack? It's not a defense of Assad, but it's an obvious question. How could we know that conclusively so soon after the attack happened? We didn't have any Americans on the ground. And why would Assad do that, given the certainty it would hurt his own interests? We are attacked, aggressively attacked, for saying that. Now a leaked document shows there was good reason to be skeptical. The OPCW is the world's top chemical weapons watchdog. In a leaked internal document, an investigator with that organization argued that the evidence from Duma does not indicate an aerial attack. Instead, he argued, the chemical weapons were manually placed on the ground. And let me uh, correct myself uh, before we continue. I said mortar. Um, he's right. It's an aerial attack. That suggests the attack may not have been a government operation after all. If he's right, the United States went to the brink of war based on fraudulent information and not for the first time. Tulsi Gabbard is a Democratic member of Congress from Hawaii, the first female combat veteran ever to run for president. And she joins us tonight. Aloha, Aloha Tucker. Congresswoman, uh, as you say. Uh, yes. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank so you. um, you're someone else who's taken an enormous amount of heat, an enormous amount of criticism. I can't overstate it um, for asking skeptical questions about our policy toward Syria. How do you assess this leaked document? What does it make you think? Yeah, I mean, this is a significant and very important development we've got to take seriously. 
uh, as you mentioned, you know, I initially expressed some skepticism around that whole situation, which is why I am getting more information, reaching out to the UN, reaching out to the OPCW, and getting answers. And when I get those answers, I look forward to coming back and sharing them with you and with your viewers. So we're hearing again, even this week, that we may need to bomb Syria yet again because there may be yet another chemical weapons attack. So there'll be three years in a row, yeah. always in the spring and always within the context of some, of some other international question. I'm beginning to suspect that we're being played here. Has yeah, that once occurred again, to you? Once again, I mean, this is why doing our due diligence and checking very carefully the evidence uh, is so important. Uh, I, I want to bring up another issue that is extremely important to the American people right now, and that is something that, that should concern all of us, which is the fact that we're at the brink of a war with Iran. I actually disagree with Tulsi right there. I don't think we're at the brink of a war with Iran. I think we're just in the middle of a very long economic grandstanding campaign with Iran. I don't think the U.S. government will ever actually engage with them in a military conflict. I think they know the cost, and the Pentagon has no plan to do that. Um, however, I think it is important to bring up that point and make sure that uh, you know your government knows that you don't want war with Iran because you think it's stupid. So I'll continue. I can tell you as a soldier, I've served over 16 years in the Army National Guard. I've deployed twice to the Middle East. I know very well both the Middle East as well as the cost of war. And as a member of Congress on the Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committees for over six years, uh, I know where this path leads us. And I'm concerned because the American people don't seem to be prepared for how devastating and costly such a war would be. It would undermine our national security because right now we have troops who are deployed to Iraq, for example. And right now they're working with both Iraqi soldiers as well as the Shia militia on the ground. And their mission is to defeat ISIS, to try to make sure that ISIS doesn't reconstitute itself and reemerge there in Iraq. But if we go to war with Iran, all of that changes because then the United States, our troops, my brothers and sisters in uniform are fighting against the Shia militia. Who knows what the Iraqi military is going to do? Maybe some go with us and fight alongside our troops. Maybe some fight against us and fight alongside the Shia militia. And so what we're facing is essentially a war that has no front lines, total chaos, engulfs the whole region, is not contained within Iran or Iraq, but would extend to Syria and Lebanon and Israel across the region, setting us up in a situation where in Iraq, we lost over 4,000 of my brothers and sisters in uniform. A war with Iran would take far more American lives. It would cost uh, more civilian lives across the region. It would worsen the refugee crisis with millions of people fleeing into Europe, further destabilizing there. Uh, what to speak of the fact that and that's a really strong point, and I'm really happy that she made that. She understands that if there was a war with Iran, the war wouldn't be limited to the Persian Gulf or just in Iran. It would be everywhere in the Middle East. She understands that the Shiites would probably be divided. Maybe some would fight with the U.S., but a lot would fight with Iran. And um, no one else brings up that point. There's not a single other politician who brings up that 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 risk. And... Um, uh, she really knows what she's talking about when she when she speaks about foreign policy. She's like she she really does know her stuff. Um, 
She's good. And that's why Tucker Carlson has her on. This would cost trillions of taxpayer dollars, taxpayer dollars coming out of our pockets to go and pay for this endless war that begs the question, especially as a soldier, what are we fighting for? What does victory look well, like? What is, what is what, the mission? So, and, and, and what's the benefit to the United States? So as far as that I can tell, question. this is being pushed primarily by one man, the National Security Advisor, John Bolton. So quick note, which you guys will probably find very funny. So North Korea called John Bolton a human defect. <laughs> a defective human product, which I find hilarious, which is true. They're right. President has said repeatedly he, he's not interested in fighting war with Iran. Bolton clearly is. So how does the United States, if this happens, how do we benefit from this? Is there an upside that you can We don't. See? We don't. And that's the bottom line. That's what's so concerning is even as people in the administration say, hey, look, we don't want to go to war against Iran. You look at people like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo and others within the administration who have talked about waging regime change war against Iran for a very long time. They have stated their intent and made their objective very clear. Your question is the most essential one. How does a war with Iran serve the best interests of the American people in the United States? And the fact is, it does not. It better serves the interests of people like Bibi Netanyahu and Saudi Arabia. Oh, shit. Tulsi called out Bibi. Um, funny thing. I'm surprised that she went there, but um, I mean, she's right. Uh, funny thing about uh, Netanyahu is that he has until midnight tonight, it's today's Wednesday, um, to form a coalition. Um, he hasn't been able to form a coalition yet. So if they don't make a new government, then they're going to have to have another election, which will, be, which will be just, it will be so funny. Who are trying to push us into this war with Iran. Again, a war that would undermine our national security in the ways that I talked about. It would strengthen terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. It would, it would carry a heavy human cost, and it would cost us taxpayers trillions of dollars. Forget about investing in rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. Forget about having the resources that we need for things like health care, education, affordable housing. We wouldn't have those resources because this would go towards yet another extremely devastating, costly war with Iran. Yes. I, I, I think if you were to poll on that question, and it is polled, you would find that what you just said has overwhelming support with voters in both parties, not just your party, the Democratic Party, but with Republicans as well. And yet yeah. I predict with certainty that you will be attacked for saying what you just did. Um, and that tells you everything. Tulsi Gabbard, running for president from the state of Hawaii. Great to see you tonight. Thank you very much. Nice to see you, Tucker. Aloha. Tulsi's great. Um, Tulsi really knows her stuff, and um, I, I love it when she gets mainstream attention. And uh, it's like the only place that she gets it is on Fox News and on Tucker Carlson shows specifically. So it's really strange. It's it, it's really crazy to see a number of things, specifically Tucker Carlson as well, because Tucker Carlson, um, back when he was on Crossfire, he was he played the role of like the hardcore warhawk. War but again, I think he got so fooled with the Iraq war that he really just um, felt that he had to second guess these things. And I think he grew and he developed a nuanced opinion on things. And that's kind of like my journey as well. Um, for everyone who's listening, um, I, I've told the story before. I used to be a, a lot more of a hardcore Republican and I, and I kind of gradually, um, I, I drifted away from that movement and I became a lot more I guess libertarian or so. I hate titles and I hate explaining what my political affiliation is because I, I, I don't like to 
throw that party label. Um, I don't really care what people's political parties are. I, at the end of the day, I, I just I don't really care. And um, I hope this show doesn't cater to a specific group too much. I know a lot of my bias does, but most of my bias is just anti-regime change bias. So I think that a lot of Democrats and a lot of Republicans can kind of can unite around this message that that I try to promulgate. And uh, something that's really cool is that I, I frequently speak to people who listen to this podcast, and it's a really diverse crew, and I and I really love it. Like I love the fact that there's both libertarians, there's conservatives, there's uh, there's progressives, um, there's straight up socialists who listen to this show. So. It's it's super cool to have a very politically diverse audience, and you know I, I I you know I love I love everyone who tunes in all the time. Um, again, I can't appreciate it. I understand that when you download a podcast and you choose to listen to an hour long podcast, because that's usually the you know the the standard timing format of this show. That you're you're giving me an hour of your time that you could be doing something else with. Um, I know a lot of you are doing it at work uh, or slacking off at work or on your commute. But again, you could be using that time to listen to something else. So um, for everyone who listens frequently, uh, I, I can't tell you how much it means to uh, means to me that you guys, uh, you know, you, you, you frequently download this show. You, you frequently tell your friends about it and you and you've been helping it grow. Um, that comes with my friendly reminder to rate and review the podcast. Um, right now I think we're at about 114. Um, we've got a lot of reviews and ratings since, uh, since we really started emphasizing that in this show. So if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, uh, please do so. It it really does help the show. I, I'm not sure exactly how it helps with the algorithm, but what it does do, it, it, um, I think it helps the show rank higher on iTunes, um, on the Apple podcast charts, because I'm discovering, and this is just some like Apple podcast nerd stuff uh, that you may not be interested in, but I'm discovering the way that the charts work is that they, they, uh, they're based off how many subscribers that you get, as well as the ratings and reviews. I'm not 100% certain, but I think it does. So it really does help me with, um, with future... Um, w- with future advertising and things like that, because I'm actually in the process of, of uh, searching for advertisers for this show. So please rate and review the podcast. We want to continue to give you free, um, good context that's loaded with with uh, with substance. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll do episodes like this just to, you know that are you know that are heavily that heavily freak uh, heavily feature. Um, you know, interviews and different um, news segments, but um, I, I want to consistently deliver content. And, and, and right now I'm just working on some history podcasts and, and, and I want to make sure that they're really well researched before I release them. So I, I didn't want to have too much of a gap between my last episode and this episode. So I'm working really hard for you guys. Again, I love you all. Um, I, I tune in for the next couple of episodes. Um, I'll just give you the lowdown. We're going to be doing a complete lead up to the Syrian war episode where uh, we do the 100 year history before the actual war begins and just map out all the events that lead up to the Syrian war. Uh, We're going to be doing another one on the Japanese military, um, how the Japanese military is actually expanding its budget and is actually becoming a pretty big powerhouse. Um, So we're going to be examining that. 
And then I will be doing a series on the rise of the Arab world as well as the rise of Islam. Um, so everyone who wants to, uh, who's interested in those topics, tune in for the future and, uh, feel free to hit me up on Twitter or whatever. Uh, I, I'm most active on Twitter. So if you hit me up on Facebook and I don't respond to you in a couple of days, it's not because I'm trying to ignore you. It's just because I, I, I check it like maybe once a week, but, um, Twitter is where I'm, where you can, you can uh, direct message me and I'll, and I'll get back to you to quit, fa- uh, the fastest, but let me know what you guys want. Rate and review the podcast. Sorry, this episode was shorter today, but, um, we'll be back to you. Uh, we're, we're releasing more content. We're getting, we're Brit that, that, um, that factory conveyor belt machine of content is moving right now. We're getting you the best stuff. All right. Peace guys. <laughs>